0: Take a risk, be flexible, be willing to listen to new ideas and and take on suggestions.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. So thank you for joining us today for another episode of Learning Unboxed. And today we are going to be continuing our conversation about putting progressive education ideologies into practice. So we've had several episodes now that talk about progressive education, sort of where the movement came from. Sort of the philosophy that's tied to it and why it works so well for students, for families, for communities, for teachers. And but today we have a very special treat because we're going to talk with um, two teachers who've been ad this progressive thing um, for a while. And they're really going to talk with us about the nitty gritty. What does it really feel like as a teacher putting that into practice, um, students and families actually living it? So joining us today are Tim O'Connor and Sarah Giles. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to set just a little bit of context um, for our listeners, um, so Tim O'Connor is a teacher of middle school mathematics, um, currently at Francis W. Parker School in Chicago, and he has many years of teaching experience um, and has been involved in teaching mathematics um, in grades 6 through 12. Um, You've taught in England and Ireland and New Zealand, all places that I love, um, as well as right here in um, the U.S. And I love one of the the pieces that got sent over to the staff ahead of the program, talking about your deep dive introduction into progressive education was five years ago, and that you are a complete convert, and that you always look for ways to improve your students' experience while challenging them in new and exciting ways. And I think that is the essence of a progressive mindset. So um, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you very much. Looking forward to discussing this.
1: It's going to be fun. And joining Tim is Sarah Giles. And um, I actually have known Sarah for a number of years. She teaches in a two, three, Multi-age classroom, which I always um, very much appreciate and love as well, at Whitcliffe Progressive Elementary School, which we've talked about numerous times um, on the program. And full disclosure, Ms. Giles had my youngest son. So for two years he uh, worked with, lived with, interact with Ms. Giles in her classroom at progressive at Whitcliffe Progressive Elementary School. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. So I want to, well, let's first and foremost, I want to dig in, um, Sarah, just a little bit as we sort of think about this conversation. I want to start because you're actually the first, um, teacher that we've had on specifically coming out of a multi-age, and multi-grade sort of, um, classroom experience tied to the progressive component, which is not necessarily that unusual within progressive, but sort of set the stage for our listeners who may not be familiar with this practice of having these multi-age or multi-group students? And why does that appeal to you as a teacher?
2: Okay. So actually, I feel like I get asked this question a lot by people who either have never heard of it or are curious about it. And so in um, a multi-age classroom, it is a purposeful joining of different ages. And so it's not sometimes there's some misunderstanding or confusion that it's, oh, they didn't have enough teachers. So they kind of (laughs) like smush some grades together, which is not true. It is um, sometimes also referred to as a family grouping. And really the purposeful grouping of the children is so that there's many purposes. One that you build a relationship with the child and the family and that continues for two years. And so I think, you know, a big component to progressive education is the relationships that we build and our ability to really understand the whole child. And so that piece makes that much smoother rather than if you go from one straight grade to another. We also purposefully group in a family grouping when we think about just kind of the spectrum of children. So if I were to teach just second grade, I would have a developmental spectrum of child interests, abilities, life experiences. And so by adding another grade level to that, it really just widens the spectrum, but doesn't particularly change anything, just encompasses a little bit more. And so what that allows is for children to more fluidly move between Mm -hmm. curriculum, different projects, different components of literacy. And I think that with that comes an ability to either stretch ourselves as learners and an ability to kind of be scooped up for Mm -hmm. children that are needing that experience as well without kind of feeling like things are like grouped in a choppy way if Mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense
1: yeah yeah and I can say as a parent who's experienced this that was definitely the the case for my child and all through his Whitcliffe experience he had multiple years where he had this this multi-age group and correct me if I'm wrong Sarah at that time you were a one two not a two three right so when when my son was going through so first and second grade and I can say that one of the the advantages I saw to it is that you know it made it possible for the teacher to have enough experience with an individual child to catch things, both positive and negative, really, really early because you've got this big, broad set of experiences with a child, and so I can certainly say that played out uh, for us in particular, um, you know, as one of those key key benefit pieces. So it was a great piece. Absolutely, and you
2: know I think from the child
1: perspective, in addition
2: to that relationship piece, it's really amazing to watch your children come back in that second gear Mm -hmm. and see them just like come out of their shells as leaders. And, you know, um, when we think about Vygotsky and his theories that, you know, we're kind of like have these experts that are bringing our other learners along I think it allows for that to happen a little more easily because Mm -hmm. our spectrum is a little larger, but also because I think, like in my current grade level, when my third graders come in, they're just they're excited for that. They are ready to be leaders and to show the children, other children, like, well, this is, you know, where we could get a pencil, even like something Mm -hmm. so little. And you know, I think it's interesting this year in particular with school beginning distance learning and our hybrid experience I didn't do something I typically do which is to have we call them silver and gold buddies so like my third graders I pair up with a second grader Mm -hmm. and when we came back to school they all were asking like well why don't we have a silver and gold buddy why didn't we do Mm -hmm. that and so I think it stands out to them even though they don't realize that the multi-age experience stands out to them
1: yeah yeah, but definitely, and that, it's a wonderful way to scaffold kids to be ready for the next sort of big transition that happens, which which really gets us um, you know, into the conversation, Tim, you know, about middle school, you know, and so because those transitions are really, really important in the foundational components of students who participate in progressive education at an elementary school, those transitions, I think, in many ways are often easier for them. So help us a little bit because we have spoken numerous times. In fact, every chance I get to mention the word Whitcliffe on this program, it always comes up um, because it's such a wonderful, wonderful experience. But help the listeners who don't know, we haven't had the chance to talk about the Francis W. Parker School. So, so give us the sort of 30,000 foot view about the school, you know, when and how did it become a progressive school? What was kind of going on with that? And then I want to dig in a little bit with you about some specific questions about the way you've taken middle school and math which can be really problematic for lots and lots of kids. And yet you're doing some really creative things in your classroom, in particular around engaging students to be advocates for their own learning. So let's start with the school itself.
0: Well, um, so Francis W. Parker was a colonel in the U.S. Army, and he was very passionate about education and the education system. One of his uh, contemporaries was Dewey. And he had a couple others that my colleagues here are going to tell me I should remember everyone's name (laughs) and know all of the exact details. He has he has been he was a person who always was trying to kind of push new ideas and get student-centered education kind of at the forefront since 1901 when the school was was founded here in Chicago. And um, we have around 950 students in our K through 12 building um and the the high school itself so grades 9 through 12 is around 90 80 students per grade mm-hmm. and it gets a little bit smaller mm-hmm. each division as you get lower in in age um, have a lot of things that that seem pretty traditional as far as there are still we keep we have grades in Um, you know, from seventh grade and higher, we do have grades in classes. uh, And that in itself is one of the discussions that my colleagues and I have been saying is, with everything kind of being in fluctuation with remote learning, hybrid learning, and everything like that, Mm -hmm. is it time to revisit maybe some of the things that we've had as a future discussion uh, about how we could be more progressive as a school? But at the same time, there are a lot of things, a lot of work that's being done that is is driven by wanting to to embody the progressive mindset. And I've learned from a lot of my colleagues here, Teresa Collins is one of the most amazing people I've worked with. And I know she's been involved with the Progressive Ed Network Mm -hmm. for a number of years. And so that's kind of, I'm trying to transition us from like the big view into kind of looking at, my middle school view and my eighth grade view of how we look at progressive ed. And, um, we incorporate that in the math program in a variety of ways. Uh, I I've tried to, ever since five years ago, get going through the, the progressive ed network, uh, the national Institute, where I learned a lot of things about myself and about how. I try to convey messages to my students, and maybe it should be a little more the other direction, where my students try and uh, give me questions or or come up with ideas that I can help help kind of make discoveries along with them. So it's it's a really kind of a an interesting environment to for someone who has i have been teaching for around seven or eight years before I came here, and. A lot of things that I thought worked perfectly in my kind of traditional mindset, I kind of had them questioned. And once I got over myself and my Mm -hmm. ego, I realized, you know what? This might actually make a lot more sense to start doing things differently in in my own practices. So,
1: you know, when we have these conversations and really sort of in, in reach, reach in and start, start pulling on all those threads, right. Around the really, really successful innovations that are happening in education. And, and despite a lot of conversation globally about the things that aren't working, which is true, there are a number of things aren't working, but the reality is there are a lot of things that are working, working really, really well right? And we want to make sure that folks don't lose sight of that. And part of the purpose of this program is to highlight those sort of case studies, um, if you will, of, of practices that are in fact working really well. And how can we help folks grab a hold of components of these great things, you know, pull them out and 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 apply them to your own community, your own environment, your own school, your own practice, right? And so I, I appreciate that very much because that's that's really the nitty gritty of the work. And I think that at the end of the day, it all boils down to finding new or maybe not even necessarily new, but creative ways to recognize where your students are within their community, within their families, within their schools, and to find ways to engage them, right? In their own learning, which then ultimately influences your practice. So Sarah, I really want to be able to dig in a little bit to this idea about student engagement. How, how do you truly, truly from your perspective perspective in your own experience in classroom how do you ensure engagement students well
2: I want to preface this by saying I am super lucky and I've only ever worked at Wycliffe my entire career and I've only ever taught a multi age class (laughs) so all of the things I'm saying are coming from that perspective that you know I don't know and I do I agree with Tim it's very humbling to be a teacher and especially a progressive educator and be reflecting on ourselves and constantly growing and learning. So I I will say that ahead of time knowing that not everything I am you know sharing might translate for everybody at the moment that they're in. But you know I think I kind of want to come back to the idea of relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very key, especially for the age group that I work with. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about the beginning of the school year, especially with the students that are new to me, it's getting to know what are they interested in both in school and outside of school? What is it that makes their family special? What Mm -hmm. does their family have special interest? Even families, family members, what like, you know, if I'm trying to think of a great example, but you know, like if for instance, once we had a grandma who no, she was a great grandma, she used to be a teacher and she loved to read. So she would come in and read with my Mm -hmm. class. So, you know what I mean? I think Mm -hmm. finding out Mm -hmm. all of those things and understanding the child and the child's family is kind of lays the groundwork for engagement. And I think that it's a misconception that in progressive education, we just let children do whatever they want all day long. Um, And, you know, especially Wycliffe is a public school. We follow the same standards as every other public school. And it would not be developmentally appropriate to let children do whatever they wanted all day long. But so I think like step one is laying that groundwork and step two is building in a framework Mm -hmm. in which child choice is then kind of admitted into the framework, for lack of a better phrase. So, and again, that's with young children. I think as children get older, there's not as much framework that needs to be built, Mm -hmm. but for, I I can say for first, second, and a little bit third, third is where I start to see more of Mm -hmm. a transition to independence. You know, that's a big piece because. For, I think for children to be engaged, they need to feel successful in what they're doing mm-hmm. and they need to have some sense of, okay, this is how I can make this work, this project right. work, this idea. This is how I can work in a group and understand my role as a group member successfully versus just like trying whatever, And so I think that's a big piece. I think it's also important to be listening to our children Mm -hmm. instead of kind of going in with your own idea of how something will go, you know? So for instance, if one of the things that we're studying is landforms, I understand the standards I need to teach with landforms, but I really let the children lead where we're going with that. Right. You know, what is it that you're interested in? Or sometimes it's even just a little thing in going with something that a child says. It can look different for each project. Sometimes that means doing something a little bit more of an independent research. Sometimes it's even as simple as like right now, the way our recess is structured, our classes are all staying together mm-hmm. per COVID. And um, at this point in our year, some of my students, it's kind of like sibling relationships a little bit because they don't have that freedom to kind of take a break from each other at recess time. And so we were brainstorming, what can we do? What games could we create so that we can have successful recess? And one of my students is an expert on making paper airplanes. And so it's like going with that, like tomorrow, our morning meeting, a portion of it is devoted to him teaching us not one, but two designs for paper airplanes. (laughs) And so it's also highlighting when children have something special Mm -hmm. to share. And then that engagement naturally follows
1: right it's it's around adding value to the contribution right and recognizing that the the individual student has in fact something something of value to add into this collaborative mix whatever that happens to be so tim let's let's take that sort of the sort of next iteration in terms of sort of what happens in middle school and some of the projects that you've been specifically doing and and more to that point you know you have found some in, intriguing ways i did click on those links and i loved them by the way right? Um, You know, in terms of thinking about middle school students and sort of where middle school students are back to what we were just talking about with, with Sarah, recognizing the family and their interests, right? The community that these kids live in, including the community that they create for themselves, kids, kids, the kids or students communities. And so, so you've crafted a set of resources for your kiddos to really meet them where they are based on their interests. And so you have a YouTube channel. So tell us about sort of what you're doing with that. And, and And more importantly, the sort of why you chose that thing as the mechanism by which you are engaging your kids. Because I have no doubt, actually the kids are pretty darn engaged with what you've created.
0: I basically kind of was where a lot of my colleagues and a lot of fellow educators were a little over a year ago trying to think, okay, how how do I transition from teaching in a classroom to teaching kind of from home over Mm -hmm. a computer screen? Mm -hmm. And um, I just started doing something that, I've done a lot more of in the last 5 years in general which is just any idea is a good idea to start with and I can poke holes in it as I go along and maybe find fixes or or better options but the the thing I thought of is how could I how could I give a somewhat normal classroom feel that's not oh my gosh my math teacher's making me watch a video of himself for twenty minutes, exactly. That is horrible. So the the idea sort of started with: can I still give out my the information that I want to give out for my algebra students, and maybe just turn up the fun a little bit? Which, I mean, I can't explain how cheesy that sounded the first time I thought of it, and then actually putting it into practice, it still felt cheesy. But I got some pretty amazing feedback. Um, I just decided that. I was going to teach in my house with essentially using my TV over my shoulder as the the blackboard, as the whiteboard. And I dressed up in different costumes each time. And I started off just doing kind of like a mix and match. Uh, and then I went to ha- old Halloween costumes, some of my wife's Halloween costumes. <laughs> I just sort of kind of went for it. And I got really good feedback because the, the students, not only were they laughing at me, which I'm okay with anyone laughing at me. It's yeah. fair game, Whatever it but <laughs> exactly. But it was also, they, they actually liked the functionality of being able to pause, rewind something. If it mm-hmm. didn't make sense the first time go at their own pace. Um, and some of the kids, when I made a, let's say 20 minute video, they, they took an hour watching it, but they were taking notes the whole time. They were really making it sink in for themselves. And I I got very positive feedback from students and from their parents who would mention that their child was laughing when they were supposed to be in class and they didn't (laughs) know what was wrong. And then they walked in and saw me dressed up as a clump of grapes or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so it was really, that's where kind of my brain started. And I have tried to use it this year as well, even in person to sort of do a flipped classroom Mm -hmm. where... Their homework would be to watch a video and, I, and when we're in class, go over practicing what they learned in the video, um, which has also had some success in, in that way too. I also wanted to touch on, it's, it's so cool to hear Sarah's explanation of what the connections she makes, the relationships and the way that the students are really at the very least, kind of equals on our journey through education, because that's so similar to what I want to have happen in my classroom. So the age difference really doesn't cause us to have different mindsets. Mm -hmm. I just like to think of myself sort of as like the tour guide. I know what they're going to see, but I can help them, you know, see highlights and I can point out things like, isn't that pretty cool? And stuff like that. And, and, they, they are more bought in. They know that they are part of that journey. And I think it just, it does create uh, an entire community in the classroom where we are all together. Mm-hmm. So,
1: I, so. I like that. I hear facilitators of learning all the time, but nobody has professed themselves to be tour guide. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for that. Tim. Yeah. I'm going to use that one. Of like, well, you know, you know, my buddy, Tim, he says teachers are like tour guides. Um, so that's perfect. But you know, and if you step back and sort of think about it, you're asking those kids to, to truly, truly go on a journey with you and to be engaged with you to get something out of it and to hopefully then give something back. And that, that does make it more like a journey and adventure and less like, the whole hum day to day that unfortunately lots of folks attribute to or associate with school, right? It's the thing we have to do instead of an opportunity that we have, and that's a oh. very very different way to sort of think about that. So I, I want to dig in just a little bit because this has been this has been a great conversation, but I, I think that we we want to sort of touch on some of the realities. You know, there are barriers. There's a reason that not all schools are progressive schools. And so Sarah, help us understand a little bit some of the barriers. And and the the irony, of course, is you were both embedded in all progressive schools, (laughs) but the reality of it is that not all schools are progressive schools. And so why do you think that is? What's what's the barrier, Sarah, from an elementary perspective that, that might make that difficult?
2: Yeah, again, I don't know what it's like to not
1: be a progressive teacher, Mm -hmm. but
2: I suspect that this job is pretty challenging in that regard of some of the barriers that I think are probably barriers for any elementary teacher, right? There are forms of assessment, namely state testing Mm -hmm. that are in direct opposition of what we believe and so it's navigating your way through those things Mm -hmm. and trying to find a balance of if you don't believe in that but if your school has like the lowest scores then like that doesn't look great to a larger community, even if you know, and maybe your smaller community knows that's not a reflection of true learning. So I do think for a lot of progressive educators in the public setting, that is a huge barrier. I think that at times it can kind of be this feeling of, so we are a progressive school in a district with other elementary schools. And you know, I think it can be tricky because while I would consider two, three its own grade level, at the district level, second grade is a grade level, and third right. grade is a grade level. So it's kind of trying to sort through all of that stuff to make it mesh in the way I would like it to. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. those are for sure some barriers. I think I don't personally feel like it's limiting to have particular standards or curriculum that we are asked to follow, I think we can be creative with that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that sometimes things can't necessarily veer off as far as I could see the potential for them to do that because Mm -hmm. I do know that I still have these other goals kind of looming over and we need to come back a little bit. So, I think that is not particularly a barrier but something that's a constant like push and pull
1: Sure, sure. Same question to you, Tim. And you have either the advantage or disadvantage, depending on your point of view, of having been in a variety of different school settings, a little different than Sarah's, uh, you know, journey. So, what, what, from your perspective, and and I, and I guess I would also ask you to add that sort of middle school lens to it, because you know, and one of the things we haven't talked about in this conversation is middle school is tough, right? All, all school is hard, but middle school is a, is a funny space. It's that middle space, right? You know, and you've got kids that are maturing at such highly variable rates, right? And it seems to coalesce for kiddos in middle school, right? You know, when they start middle school, you know, they can still love the teacher more than they love each other. And we embrace that. But something happens along the way in middle school. By the time they hit eighth grade, holy moly, man, they might not really love you so much. They might like love the person sitting next to them, maybe a little bit more, but not sure what to do with that. So you got hormones going, you've got family things going, you've got growing up things going, and sometimes education can get lost in the midst of all of that going on, right? So share with us a little bit your thoughts about some of the barriers from a progressive standpoint as it relates to middle school.
0: Yeah, I, I think it it had there are a few, a few of the things that, that Sarah mentioned are definite the uh, boundaries, as as you might say, or barriers to entry, just because. We are able to have a lot more autonomy in my own classroom. Our school has more freedom as far as scheduling and and, uh, getting different resources and things like that, where we are blessed in a lot of ways. And uh, it's it's it sometimes makes me feel guilty that we have such ability to do some great things that not everyone else gets to. But I think. A couple of the big things that jumped out in my head when I was thinking about this is it's kind of the trust from not just the administrators in this building, but also when you look outside of our walls, it's do would other institutions accept students coming from our school. Mm -hmm. Do they know that those students are coming in with a set skill? Um, Are they. All you know, can they trust what we are giving is what other schools would be giving to their students? Mm-hmm. And so, I think that's where I know for our high schoolers that are going on and looking for universities or colleges to attend, our college counseling department spends a lot of time and effort to connect with universities' admissions programs so that it's very clear what a, a Parker student brings with them mm-hmm. and that is one of the biggest things that I thought of, but just in my own classroom, when I have an idea about, I, should I try this? Maybe that, maybe that would be a way that the students would be more engaged, or the students would uh, respond to something really well. I can just try it. It doesn't always work, but it's nice to be able to have that freedom mm-hmm. where I can, I can try to say, hey, I'm not going to grade this test. You all are going to grade your own test. And I just live with the score that they write down at the top. And that's just an example of something I've done. And I will say it's shocking how how honest and sincere they are when they do do that. Um, it's kind of amazing. But to be able to try something like that is not what every administrator uh, would be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's plenty of other reasons, but that's probably the, the couple of the biggest ones that. That
1: stand out. Yeah. And it's definitely one of the things that I've heard, you know, in numerous working with schools, you know, all over the country and around the world, different kinds of schools, different places, you know, anytime at at past, we would go in just to really help them think about, you know, what could teaching and learning look like if you were to reimagine it, right? The the blank slate, what do you want to be? You know, and oftentimes what happens is we start with all the reasons why we can't instead of all the reasons why we should. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's part of it back, back to your statement, you know, from an administrative or from a testing state testing standpoint, or just, you know, that giant fear of if we do it differently, what might happen, right? It might, it might go incredibly well, but oftentimes what happens is it starts out well. And then there's, I always like to talk about it as a squabble. There's this moment in all of these transformational sort of initiatives where the balance is such that it can get really dicey for a little while and you have to be willing to live through the storm to see the sun shining on the flip side of it and 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 to have learned so much through that experience um but that that can be hard from an administrative or decision-making standpoint to justify to communities to families so um i think that um you know, all of that is very, very real. I like to close the program by recognizing that not everybody who's listening is in the schools that you're in or has had the chance to have the opportunity, the experience that you have, but, but who may want to try what they heard you talking about. So Sarah, well, we'll, we'll start with you. You know, if, if, if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I want to do this thing, but what's the one piece of advice you would give them as somebody was getting ready to embark in a new journey for their own teaching and learning, what would it be?
2: You know, I kind of think for me, school should be fun. Mm. I mean, not chaotic, (laughs) but I think it should be fun. And I think that the children should be having fun and Like, it's okay to have fun too as a teacher. Like, it doesn't mean you're not doing your job. So I think, you know, finding something that feels fun in a way that children are excited. Maybe, maybe you have a fun song you listen to and dance to every day before you clean up. Mm -hmm. Maybe you do a special greeting with each other at your morning meeting. Maybe if you haven't tried a morning meeting, you try that and try finding, you know, just a few minutes for the children to connect with each other each morning. I think starting small and knowing that, you know, I think all human beings are worthy of leading a happy life, no matter what they're doing. So I think that would be like my one thing I would try.
1: Yeah, it's great advice. Thank you for that, Tim. Same question to you. What, what would you tell someone who came to you and said, "Tim, I'm thinking about trying this thing"?
0: I, I think the biggest thing I would say that I would say to a student or to a, uh, a fellow educator is uh, take risks. I, I, I would say that to somebody, a colleague who's thinking they might want to try a new project, they aren't sure how it's going to work, and I'd say, you know what? You can try to plan as much as you want behind the scenes. Eighth graders like I work with, they're always gonna throw something into the mix mm-hmm. that you weren't prepared for. So take a risk, be flexible, be willing to listen to new ideas and and take on suggestions. Um, and to my students, I always tell them to take risks because that's why that's why mathematicians use a pencil, is because mm-hmm. you can make mistakes and you can work off of, off of those mistakes and learn from them. So uh, I think that's what I would, I would kind of Say to someone in that situation, but always have fun as well. man, that's that's a really great piece of advice. If you can connect with your students mm-hmm. on that fun level, you get so much good grace. and um, I, I I think that that makes a huge difference too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There, there should be fun in in every single thing that we we do, and uh, and don't forget to um, to be a great tour guide. You know, along the the way of that adventure that you're having. So, I want to thank you both very much for um, sharing sharing your journeys with us and taking time out of your day to have a conversation. So, thank you so very very much. You're thank welcome. You.
2: Thank you for having us. This has been great. Just to have a little moment to talk and think about this thing that we're so passionate about.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.